0: Welcome to The Sustainability Agenda, a podcast series focusing on the evolving complexities of the sustainability landscape, with a view on addressing current issues in a concise format to help you navigate and take action. I'm your host, Dominique Barker. Please join me as we explore today's most pressing matters with special guests that will give you some new perspective and help you make sense of what really matters
1: and they blew up a 46,000 year old sacred indigenous site in Western Australia last year. Completely gone, cannot be replaced. And this had, you know, a
0: devastating impact I have the great pleasure to introduce to you Fiona Reynolds. Ms. Reynolds is the CEO of Principles for Responsible Investing, or PRI. She's been there for almost nine years. So welcome, Fiona. She has spent over 25 years in the financial and pensions sector. She convenes the UN Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance, which I expect will gain prominence coming into COP26 this November 2021. And she is also on the board of the UN Global Compact the Principles of Responsible Investing, or the PRI, has over 4,000 signatories and represents over $100 of assets under management. So the PRI recently came out with their strategic plan this past April. You can just point out briefly some of those strategic priorities that you've set for the PRI, which I expect would set the direction for investors and the investor agenda. Thanks for having me. So yes, we launched our new three-year strategy in April. The theme of the strategy is
1: building a bridge between financial risks, opportunities, and real-world outcomes. Just quickly on that theme, it really recognises that in the early days of responsible investment, most people thought about ESG in terms of what were the ESG risks to my portfolio. But now more and more, investors are also starting to think about what impact does my portfolio have on the real world and how do I measure that? So there's no doubt that we've come a long way since 2006 and so have investors. And, you know, there's been real growth in responsible investing, but also in the maturity of the way people go about it. But I think there's still a lot to do. So a bit of a focus for us in the next three years is climate change will remain a big issue for us, but it's moving more into how do we align with the 1.5 degree world? Got a big focus on human rights because really we don't think that investors are systematically incorporating human rights. How do you use the sustainable development goals as a lens to be able to look at and measure your impact in the real world? How do we make sure that financial policy is more aligned with sustainability? How do we elevate social issues as well? You know, the S seems to still get left behind a lot. We're focused on um, how do we get really good, meaningful ESG data as well? And how do we continue to improve the accountability of signatories to the principles as well? So that we're, we're not in a situation of having greenwashing. So there's a lot more to it, but in a nutshell, there's some of the things we're doing. You know, we're really wanting to make sure that we're continuing to develop Responsible investors who can work within sustainable
0: markets and that we're contributing to a prosperous world for all. Great. Thank you for that. And I don't think the audience could see, but when Fiona spoke about adding social issues, Kike nodded her head. I know that's an area (laughs) close to her heart. So, Fiona, if we could just talk about that 1.5 degrees, I really do want to get to the human rights because that is indeed an area that we don't speak much about. So, we'll get to that. But if we could just talk about that 1.5 degree alignment to the Paris Agreement, what are you expecting out of the G20 and coming into COP26? And what does it mean for investors and for corporates? Sure. So, I mean, this year, the G7 and the G20 summits,
1: as well as the COP26 event for November, I think they're really all pivotal moments for governments to come together to plan to align mainstream financial and real economy policies with sustainability goals, because currently they aren't really aligned. And this is part of our message to all of these groups. The meetings really need to be focusing on action to link all the COVID recovery plans and financing to sustainability goals, including climate. And this is what we're focused on, again, at the PRI in part of our discussions. I think that multilateral organisations and intergovernmental dialogue platforms such as the G7 and the G20 really represent a missing piece of the jigsaw in sustainable finance. And while policies promoting sustainable finance and investments have been developing at an unprecedented rate, they're not very even. And they're still sort of over to the side. So in, at a multilateral level, sustainable finance has either been overlooked or left by env- environment or development departments and not by. Finance departments, and that's what we need to see. So it's been really great at these G7 so far to see that there's been support for mandatory TCFD, but also for tax reform, which is something that the PRI has been talking about for years that we need to do something else about tax if we want to solve inequality problems. But coming to COP26, We know that it's our last major opportunity to get the world on track for 1.5 degrees of warming, that we're well off track. And so what we're focused on is how do we see more net zero commitments from governments, from the private sector, from business, from investors, with more ambitious timelines. I think setting a 2050 target is one thing, signing a statement is one thing, but we need to set shorter term goals, 2025 2030. And we need to see from all of these groups, the action plans that are going to help us get there. Just in terms of governments, we also want to see that governments are bringing in the right policies and industry policy that will drive change. So we've been talking about the need for some sort of carbon pricing and end to fossil fuel subsidies States phasing out the internal combustion engine from all countries in the G7 and G20. Changes in energy policy, agricultural practices, land policy, ending deforestation, for example. Because without these changes, investors and business actually can't get to net zero. So we need the discussions of all of these groups to focus on how we all play our part. So we're wanting to help investors align with the 1.5 degree world. You mentioned the Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance that we've put in place for asset owners. Asset owners coming together because this hasn't been done before. It's hard. How do you get to 1.5 degrees? What do you do? What policies do you need in place? And then there's an investment manager, Net Zero Investment Management Group as well, coming together, share resources, share brain power to be able to to do this. And I think the private sector is really coming a long way.
0: Okay. So a couple of things that I got out of that, and I think I've seen this on your blog about how 2030 is the new 2050 and how we need to be setting shorter term goals. And this is the decade. This is frankly the year to set some objectives and to have some tangible results. You touched on the net zero asset owners alliance. And I wanted to ask you about the power of coalitions. It is a trend that we have seen in the past few years and is becoming increasingly important. And maybe you can speak about what that would mean, for example, for corporates, how they should be thinking about those alliances and coalitions and how seriously they should be taking them and perhaps You can draw on some of the recent news we saw from the Exxon Shell news from the government and Chevron as well. Maybe just speak about the importance of those coalitions and what we're seeing and the importance for corporates to understand that power. The agenda is so big that no one investor is able to
1: move things along themselves. And also, it's really quite confusing for corporates if you've got all these different investors coming to you, all with different asks. And organisation A wants something and organisation B wants exactly the opposite. So, to be successful as an investor industry, we need to come together and we need to be all moving in the same direction. If I use as a fantastic example of this collaboration, biggest ever corporate to an investor dialogue that's ever happened on any issue is Climate Action 100+. So, it has 500 investors, 50 trillion in assets under management. It's focused on the largest 100 emitting companies in the world, but all of these investors have got the same asks of companies. So to set a net zero target and tell us how you're going to get there, report in line with the TCFD, and also to let us understand the governance. What's happening at the board level? What discussions are you having about this? It's been hugely influential and is having a lot of success where we're seeing big net zero commitments from large oil and gas players. It's come up a a lot through Climate Action 100+. And you mentioned some recent things that have happened. Where investors are not seeing that, that this engagement is working, they're stepping up and they're using their voting rights. So, just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen Exxon, Chevron, that there's been change. So, at Exxon, investors put up their own directors. Exxon now has three new board members, thanks to Investor Action. Chevron has been forced to reduce emissions through the voting power of investors. And then over the other side of the world in Europe, we've seen that Shell was taken to court and the court has demanded that they decrease their emissions as well. So really a lot of action. So I think that what the corporates need to do is really understand this trend that is happening. So I think it's just going to go forward. It's not
0: going to go backwards and engage with the coalitions. That's fantastic advice. Thank you for that. And that engagement and communication is really important between companies and the investor groups. So thank you for that. Fiona, can we talk about impact? When I was at CIBC Asset Management, we are signatories to the PRI. And for those of you who don't know, there's a reporting element to it. And some of it is voluntary to disclose, you're mandatory to answer the questions. And this past year, there was an element of impact. And I don't think the results are out yet, but maybe you can give a little bit of perspective on some of the early responses or what you expect to see, because I certainly am seeing on the private equity side in particular, more and more to do with impact. And it's very important to their stakeholders and to their investors, which is a really interesting trend. Can you just speak about some of the global trends you're seeing? Sure. So this comes back to when I was
1: talking about in terms of our new theme, building a bridge between risk and real world outcomes, and that more of our investors are wanting to understand the impact, the outcome of their investments. So, as you said, we have a reporting framework. Every one of our signatories must report on an annual basis. Now, until this year, we've really asked you to report on indicators that are around process and policies. So, what policies do you have in place and how do you go about them? And that's really been it. Now we've added this new module, a plus module, which is all about the outcomes. How are you measuring them? What are you doing? And most of it is voluntary. We're hoping that to use all of the information so that we can showcase to investors what people are doing, whether that is I've committed to 1.5 degrees and this is how I'm going about it. I've upgraded my stewardship to focus on outcomes, and this has been what has happened. So, as you said, the reporting just recently closed off. It has been a pilot year, and I would say it hasn't been without some challenges as well. But we had 1,200 of our signatories who reported on outcomes. So many more than I would have expected have taken the opportunity. So I do think you're right, Dominique, that many more people are looking to be able to show what they're doing Investment managers are being asked by their asset owners, asset owners are being asked by their beneficiaries, show me what you're doing. So, we're also working about how can you build the metrics because it's easy to say, show me the outcomes, but How do you actually measure these things? So that's something else that we're working on with the PRI with investors.
0: Right. And I'd encourage Make My Money Matter, Richard Curtis's videos, take a look at that. There's an impact element to that. I do have a question that's related to impact. What will be the main fields or sectors for impact investment in future years in Europe? Do you have any predictions on sectors that are uh, most opportune for impact?
1: Well, there's a lot more focus in Europe on the whole issue of biodiversity, land use, water, etc. So, starting to think more about climate than about emissions reduction, that's obviously important, but starting to think about how we can more effectively do things in biodiversity and how can we invest in that way. And I think there's also more investment started to happen to think about what are the technologies that we need for the future to be, particularly in some developing countries, to be able to actually get to net zero. We're also seeing interest though in across Europe in looking at impact investing from the perspective of diversity. So how can you support diverse corporations that are starting out and projects so there's some of the trends that we're
0: seeing. Great. Thank you very much. You spoke about your two pillars of importance so the climate change or 1.5 degrees to be aligned with the Paris agreement and then human rights. Cuz I think that's very daunting for a corporate to be thinking about what that means and what is important to report. I think it's also probably daunting for asset managers in terms of how they assess human rights management. Could you just speak on this complex topic? Yeah,
1: so, you know, I think that we've got the E, B, S and the G, but the S doesn't get very much attention, as I've said, and we really need to be focusing more on it. Now, at the PRI, as with many investors, we've done lots of work on social issues. So, we've looked at labour rights in the extractive sector. We've looked at child labour in the cobalt industry, all of these kinds of issues. And they're very important, but they're an issue in a sector Rather than thinking about human rights in a really systemic way, in the way that we're starting to look at climate change now, we're looking at across how do we integrate climate risk in everything that we're doing across our whole portfolio. So we've built a five-year human rights project. So we know that it's difficult, but some investors are doing this really well, but a lot aren't. It's new to them. So this is about building the tools, the education, for investors to incorporate them. We're not looking to start from scratch. There are plenty of overarching human right frameworks that are out there. So we wanna use the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. And how do corporations use them? So how do investors actually incorporate them? And then we'll also incorporate it into our own reporting framework. I think this is really important because what happens with the ESG issues, and maybe it doesn't always help that it's called the EDS and the G, they're just too siloed and people don't think necessarily about an issue in a holistic way. So if we think about climate change, for example, it's not just about, again, emissions reduction. There is a whole social aspect, a whole human rights aspect. There's job aspects. There's many things to be considered and we just need to look at
0: issues in a much more sophisticated and holistic way. So last week I presented at the Institute for Corporate Directors and there was a question about Indigenous issues, for example, and this is topical in Canada. Fiona, I think you know that there's been some controversy and it's been a bit newsworthy in Canada. I did want to cover it. I know you're Australian. Could you just briefly tell our audience about what happened with Rio Tinto this past year? I think it's relevant to the discussion on human rights as well. Rio Tinto, as they were going about
1: their activities, decided they were blowing up lots of areas and part of that was in the Jugun Gorge and they blew up a 46,000-year-old sacred Indigenous site in Western Australia last year. Completely gone, cannot be replaced. And this had, you know, a devastating impact on the Indigenous community. This was an extremely important sacred site for them There followed, therefore, a huge outcry, not just from the Indigenous community, but from civil society in Australia, from investors in Australia and around the world, from other businesses. And I think this comes back to the power of the investor. There was intense pressure from investors about this issue. How could this happen? But more importantly, how will it not happen again? So Rio Tinto ended up having to clear out its top management and most recently it included the announcement of its chair stepping down. And I think that there's a much greater focus these days from investors about Indigenous culture, about the rights of the traditional owners of the land where mining companies and others, others are working. And wanting to understand what that relationship is, asking questions about how do you engage with the community? What are the land rights issues? How is this ongoing dialogue happening? And I think that's a real positive because as you know, in Canada and we in Australia, that we don't necessarily have a proud history from our countries
0: on engaging in these ways. Thank you for that. Could you touch on using the UN Sustainable Development Goals as a lens to measure impact?
1: We were thinking about this whole issue of impact and outcomes and how are we going to start measuring it? And then we thought, well, there really is a perfect program, which is the Sustainable Development Goals. I mean, I think of the Sustainable Development Goals as the world's business plan. If the world could actually adopt all of the Sustainable Development Goals over up till 2030, we would solve a lot of the world's problems. So then, Within the framework that we've built, you're using the SDGs as a way of measuring your outcomes so you can map yourself against the sustainable development goals. There's 17 goals, but underneath the goals, there's also over 160 indicators. No use creating new things. Use the things that are there that have had a lot of work and thought put into them. And more importantly, that, you know, nearly every world government has signed on to. I will say that the sustainable development goals weren't actually designed, obviously, for investors, but I do think they can still be useful to investors to think about the things that they need to be considering and measuring them.
0: One of the differences between North America and Europe with regards to sustainability and sustainable investing has been the regulated led lens in Europe for example, with the SFDR, but very regulated versus North America, which tends to be industry driven. And I think there's pros and cons to both. Can you just discuss the pros and cons, perhaps? Thank you. I think there's pros and cons as well. And uh, I'm not European, even though I live in the
1: UK. I very much believe in investor action, because I think that governments of all persuasions can come and go and regulations can change. But if that investors are committed to what they're doing, they can act unless someone puts some barrier in their way in regulation. They can act and they can act together and move together. Regulation, I think, can also sometimes end up being the lowest common denominator. So this is, this is what you must do. And then a lot of people can just stop there instead of increasing their ambition. But having said that, Where you've got a large tail of investors who aren't doing things, it can help bring those people to the table. It can help signal from governments the importance of sustainability issues and that this is important to the government policy and so we're integrating them. There's definitely pros and
0: cons. There's an unfortunate political trend toward isolationism around the world. How do you see this impacting how we will achieve net zero, SDG advancement, etc.? And I think related to, for example, the just transition, and I know the PRI has some fairly important thoughts on that. I think it's essential to climate action, particularly in countries like Canada. Like I said, I'm from Australia,
1: where you've got your big fossil fuel producers and a lot of people work in the fossil fuel industry. Now those workers cannot be the people who are left to pay the cost of climate change. It is not their fault. They have to be taken along on the path and there needs to be solutions found. And it is not beyond the capability of governments, investors and business and civil society to come together to solve these problems. Otherwise you get wedge politics whereby action can be stopped. This has happened in Australia. Governments really only got like a one seat majority, a lot of mining workers they vote for the party who's going to do the least because they're worried about their jobs. So that's a problem. That's why we all have to incorporate social issues, the just transition into all that we're doing on climate action. I would just also say on isolationism, I'm not 100% sure what's happening in Canada. Again, where I'm from in Australia, international border has been closed for nearly 18 months. You cannot get out of the country, you cannot get into the country unless you are a citizen and even then there is a daily and a weekly cap on how many people can come in. There's more than 50,000 Australian citizens still trapped overseas because they cannot get home and I really worry about this sort of island mentality and we just worry about ourselves. And I can see it in the conversations that I have with people back home about these issues. We just need to worry about ourselves and protect ourselves. I think it is really,
0: really concerning. Well, Fiona, thank you so much. That was a terrific conversation. And thank you for your leadership with the principles of responsible investing and best of luck to you in your future career. Please join us next time as we tackle some of sustainability's biggest questions, providing different perspectives to help you move forward. I'm your host, Dominique Barker, and this is The Sustainability Agenda.
2: The materials disclosed on this podcast are for informational purposes only and subject to our code of conduct as well as iROC rules. The information and data contained herein has been obtained or derived from sources believed to be reliable without independent verification by CIBC Capital Markets and to the extent that such information and data is based on sources outside CIBC Capital Markets, we do not represent or warrant that any such information or data is accurate, adequate or complete. Notwithstanding anything to the contrary herein, CIBC World Markets Inc and or any affiliate thereof shall not assume any responsibility or liability of any nature in connection with any of the content of this communication. This commun- Communication is tailored for a particular audience and accordingly this message is intended for such specific audience only. Any dissemination, redistribution, or other use of this message or the market commentary contained herein by any recipient is unauthorized. This communication should not be construed as a research report. The services, securities, and investments discussed in this report may not be available to nor suitable for all investors. Nothing in this communication constitutes a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any specific investments discussed herein. Speakers on this podcast do not have any actual implied or apparent authority to act on behalf of any issuer mentioned in this podcast. The commentary and opinions expressed herein are solely those of the individual speakers, except where the author expressly states them to be the opinions of CIBC World Markets, Inc. The speakers may provide short-term trading views or ideas on issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments, but investors should not expect continuing analysis, views, or discussion relating to those instruments discussed herein. Any information provided herein is not intended to represent an adequate basis for investors to make an informed investment decision and is subject to change without notice. CIBC Capital Markets is a trademark brand name under which Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, CIBC, its subsidiaries and affiliates provide products and services to our customers customers around the world. For more information about these legal entities as well as the products and services offered by CIBC Capital Markets, please visit www.cibccm.com.